Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. And we welcome you to our Sunday morning Bible study. Whether you are joining us here in person or in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM or worldwide on KFUO.org, we welcome you. We're doing an in-depth Bible study through the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be picking up at Luke 6, verse 12, uh, starting today. For those of you who are here in the gymnasium, we do have hard copy Bibles, paper Bibles, in the back uh, near the door there. Uh, some of you use your phone or however you have the scriptures in front of you. That's great. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Mike, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the equipping you have done for us in terms of sustaining us through the battle with the evil one, the old evil foe, Satan. We thank you that your son has indeed fulfilled your promise given to our first parents to crush the head of Satan. We thank you for your son's life, death, and resurrection, and all that that means for us both here and eternally. We thank you also for your word and for the opportunity to come together and study that word. May your Holy Spirit guide and bless us this day as we do so. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just one, before we get started, one little commercial that I wanted to get out. I think it's good for, for all of us here and also for those on KFUO, that starting on Tuesday night, September 7, so two weeks, or a week actually from this coming Tuesday, will be our Institute of Theology here at St. Paul's, and it will go for four consecutive Tuesday nights in September, the Tuesdays in September, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock, and it will be a study of Psalms, and it's going to be led by a classmate of mine, actually, Dr. Timothy Seleska, who is a professor at Concordia Seminary. And I will just tell you that this is not going to be just a kind of a sterile look at the Psalms, he's going to be approaching them in a way that will help us to utilize the Psalms in our daily devotional life. Make the Psalms come alive. I've heard him before, and I, I think you will really be blessed by that. So again, that's the Tuesday nights in September at 7 o'clock here at St. Paul's, and that's the uh, Institute of Theology, so each Tuesday in September, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock. And again, that's not only for St. Paul's people, that's for anybody listening over KFUO, come and join us. We would love to have you present for that. I think it's going to be in our ministry building, actually, somewhere in our ministry building. I'm not sure exactly where. It might be the Fellowship Hall, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, Tuesday nights in September. All right, let's pick up then, after the commercial's done now, let's pick up where we left off. And you remember last week, we were starting to see the opposition to Jesus growing from, in particular, the Pharisees and the scribes. And last week, remember, that in particular, there was conflict over what Jesus did on a Sabbath day and what his disciples did on a Sabbath day. Earlier on in the chapter, right at the beginning of chapter 6, remember, it's a Sabbath day, and the disciples of Jesus are walking uh, in a field, and lo and behold, they picked some grain and, and uh, rubbed it in their hands and ate it which, again, the Pharisees would identify as harvesting, the picking of the grain, and thrashing when they rubbed it in their hands, both of which the Pharisees condemned Jesus and his disciples as being unlawful to do on the Sabbath day. And then remember, on another Sabbath day, 
Jesus was in a synagogue, and there was a man with a withered hand. And remember, Jesus called him forward. Didn't even let him stay. Called him forward for everybody to see and healed him on the Sabbath day. And at that, Luke records how the Pharisees were furious with Jesus because, again, he did this on the Sabbath day and were looking for a way to bring charges against him, religious charges, of course, against him. Okay? So that's where we left off, and we're seeing, again, we're seeing the, you can just feel that the temperature is going up here with the opposition to Jesus. And he is not cowering, he is not shrinking back whatsoever. He continues his march to the cross. So, with that now, let's go to 6, verse 12. And we're going to see here the calling of the 12, of the 12 disciples. And we'll say a little bit, at least of some of what we know about the 12. But let's just start at verse 12, and I'm going to read through uh, a little bit here. Probably, we'll probably go through the end of the disciple list here, through 16, and then go back and talk about it. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. All right, let's go back. Notice here, this is a, a common theme in Luke, and Jesus, a common activity for Jesus, that he goes off to pray. And he is, it says there, you don't know exactly when it says in these days, so it's rather indefinite. He went out to a mountain. Well, mountain might be a bit of an exaggeration. If you've been to the Holy Land, there's only a couple mountains probably that, within Israel, that really would qualify as mountains. A hill is probably a little better. And we're wondering whether this is actually the hill of the Beatitudes which is right alongside the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been there and uh, recall. It goes up maybe about 300 feet or so. So it's called a mountain. It's probably just a, a bit of exaggeration, if that's where it is. We're not sure. Again, it's speculation that that's where it is on the Sea of Galilee along the side. Notice there, he continues in all night. He continued in prayer. Now, this word for prayer is not the type of prayer where we're giving thanks and we're praising God. This is the type of prayer where we're asking petitions, we're, we're asking God things, okay? And so as he uh, has and will at critical points in his earthly ministry, Jesus is off in prayer with the Father. said a little bit about that last week, or the last time I was here, I think before last week. You know, again, that's quite instructive for us, isn't it? And this is another critical point because Jesus is going to select these 12 disciples. And thinking about what is going to be in their future and what they are going to be faced with as a direct result of being followers of Jesus. So no doubt, and again, we don't have what he prayed. We don't have the exact petitions that he prayed. But you would think that a goodly part of that was praying on behalf of those disciples that he was going to be choosing, those apostles. And again, what was going to be in their future? Okay. 
So then, notice, he called the disciples and chose when the day came. Uh, he called the disciples, which means just students, and notice there, he appointed them to be apostles. Now notice those are two different words. The word for apostle comes from a, a Greek word, which is very close to the English, apostello. It means being sent out with authority. So you're going out, if you're an apostle, you are going out, in this case, representing Jesus and with his authority. And when Jesus, for example, sent out the 72, he said to them, whoever hears you hears me, and whoever uh, denies you denies me, and whoever denies me denies the Father who sent me. So they're going out, it's just like you are speaking with Jesus if you're speaking with one of them. They have that authority sent from the Father, or sent from Jesus, I'm sorry. And they are his messengers now. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Do these guys strike you as, well, we'll talk a little bit about them, but are they probably the brightest and best that uh, society had to offer at that time, the, the uh, cream of the crop, the ones that you'd gravitate toward right away? No, no. And uh, in fact, just the opposite. And I think there's an important thing for us to remember there as well, that so, how often doesn't God work the, some of his greatest wonders through some of the most humble people, some of the most humble things in this world, like water, like bread and wine, and brings about some of his most incredible wonders. And here, again, these guys will uh, be, be no exception uh, to that. So let's talk a little bit about this. Now, Peter, named Simon, who's going to be called Peter, which means rock, you know, we know quite a bit about him. He's, you know, one of the one of the mainstays when it comes to these disciples. We already saw him. Remember, he was already called back in Luke 5 a couple weeks ago when there was that miraculous catch of fish, remember? So much so that the boats were sinking. And he, Jesus has already um, called him. And Peter, when you see him throughout the scriptures, is sort of the first among equals when it comes to the disciples, it seems. He's always there when big things happen, like at the transfiguration. It's, it's basically he, James, and John are sort of the inner circle. They're there with Jesus at the transfiguration, right? They are allowed to go further with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is praying on Monday, Thursday night. They're allowed to go further with him when he raises Jairus' daughter. They go right into the house with him. They're always, always there, it seems, right in the middle of things when big things are happening. Okay? So Peter we know uh, a lot about. He, he also has this tendency to speak up for the whole group at one time, sometimes before he considers everything he's saying. Remember the incident where Jesus and the disciples are at Caesarea Philippi. And at Caesarea Philippi, we've been there, you can sit at, and there's a big hill, that rock that has niches carved into it. And in each of those niches, they used to place a false god back in Bible times. And you could come there then, people could come there and pray to and worship as many or as few of those false gods as they wanted to. And it's in that context that Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
right? Am I just like one of those or not? And remember, after they give him the, the word on the street, remember, it's Peter who pipes up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that's probably one of his highest moments. But he quickly sinks to one of his lowest right after that when Jesus says the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem and be handed over to the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, be crucified and rise again on the third day. And what does Peter say? No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then what, is, what does Jesus say in response? Get thee behind me, Satan. So from, from the highest heights to the lowest lows within you know, just minutes probably of one another. So Peter, you know, one of the main of the disciples, along with James and John, they're always there. We believe that Peter was killed. By the way, all of these guys, tradition has it outside of the Bible now, that all these guys, with the exception of John, all died as martyrs rather than deny the faith. And we have it outside of Scripture that we believe it's the spring uh, of 68 A.D., that Peter was crucified outside of Rome, and he refused to he, he refused to be uh, killed in the same way that his Savior was. He said, "I'm not worthy to die in the same way that my Savior did," and so he was crucified upside down. So many times you will see, maybe in a stained glass window, or you'll see an image of a cross upside down, and that would be a reference to Peter and the way that he died. Andrew, Peter's brother, we don't know a lot about. By the way, there are kind of like three tiers of four each as we go through this. The first tier is Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Andrew is Peter's brother. In John 1, we have Andrew listening to John the Baptist, and he hears John the Baptist identify Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what does Andrew do? He goes and gets whom? His brother Peter. Just think of that. If, if Andrew hadn't done that, would we have Peter? Well, Lord probably would have got him some other way, I guess, if he wanted him. But, you know, Andrew is always remembered for that one who reached out to his brother and brought him. At the feeding of the 5,000, he is the one who speaks up and says, Well, there's a boy here who has five loaves of bread and two fish, but what are they among so many? He's the one who speaks up there. But other than that, we just don't know a lot about Andrew. A couple other things, but not, not much. Tradition has it that he was crucified in 60 A.D., 60 A.D. Now James, this is the son of Zebedee now, the brother of John. He, again, is always there when big things are happening. He is the first apostle who is killed. The first apostle who is martyred in Acts chapter 12. He's put to death by Herod. And uh, so he is the first one who was wiped out. Now, obviously, Stephen was killed before that, but Stephen was not an apostle. He was uh, instead a deacon. Then John, who is, we think, the younger brother of James. Again, son of Zebedee, as was James. And, of course, John is always there when big things are happening. He is, again, the author of the Gospel of First, Second, and Third John of the Book of Revelation. Remember when he is on the cross, remember what when Christ does when he's on the cross? Turns to, to John and says, concerning Mary, behold your mother, and to her behold your son. And tradition outside the Bible has it that John fulfilled that responsibility, taking Mary to the city of Ephesus, 
and that John finished out his years there and Mary as well in Ephesus. I've said before in his class, when you go there, they'll want to take you to a house that they will say, this is the house where John uh, cared for Mary. No, it, it just can't be. It's, it's not old enough to be the house. It's got to be somewhere around there, I'll grant you that, but it's not the house. So we didn't even, when we went, we didn't even bother going there. So that's tier one. Tier two, we've got Philip, and uh, he is from Bethsaida also, just like Peter and Andrew. Now, who did Philip, anybody know who did Philip introduce to Jesus? Anybody remember? Nathaniel, or he is uh, sometimes referred to as Bartholomew. Same, we think it's the same guy, right? He, went, he goes and gets Nathaniel and brings him. Let's see. He asked, he's the one who asked Jesus, how are we going to feed all these people when they're feeding the 5,000? Okay? Now, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, is the next one. And when Philip gets him and tells them, we have found the one who Moses and the prophets point to, you remember the kind of sarcastic comment that Bartholomew or Nathaniel made when he found out Jesus is the one from Nazareth? You remember what kind of sarcastic comment he made? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> and so, you know, he, he's remembered for that as well. And when Philip does call him, and Jesus says, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before he called you. It's then that Nathaniel makes the confession, or, I'm sorry, Bartholomew makes, Nathaniel makes the confession of faith that you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And that's right there in John 1. So again, another one. Matthew, we know, we've seen him already. Levi, named Levi, he's the one, he was called already. Remember, we saw him a couple weeks ago at his tax stand along the side of the road by Capernaum. And Jesus comes by and calls him. And then remember, Matthew, after he's called, we read in the very next verse that Matthew makes a feast for Jesus in his home. And invites whom? A whole bunch of tax collectors to come there with him. You know, what a great outreach that was. And there they are at the feet of the Savior. So he's known for that, and obviously the, the writing of the, of the gospel. Thomas. I always feel a little emboldened to talk a little bit about Thomas. Obviously he's known as Doubting Thomas, right? On Easter evening, behind closed doors, behind locked doors, Christ appears to the disciples. Problem is, Thomas is not there, right? And actually, I think instead of Doubting Thomas, he should probably be called Absolutely Unbelieving Thomas. He said, right, unless I see the nail prints, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. He's not saying, oh, I don't know. I will not believe. And then remember, the very next Sunday night, again, they're behind closed doors, and Jesus appears again. Thomas is there and invites Thomas, if he wants to, to go ahead and examine. And, and then, remember, Thomas makes that great confession of faith, my Lord and my God. And he'll always be known for that. Another thing he is known for is in John chapter 11, when the messengers come and tell Jesus that Lazarus is very ill, and Jesus wants to go to Bethany, which is near Jerusalem, and the rest of the disciples are saying, oh, we better not do that, they're going to kill you. It's Thomas who speaks up and says, let us go there even if we must die with him. That's Thomas. Okay? 
So he, he will forever be known as Doubting Thomas or Unbelieving Thomas, but he had his, uh, his good qualities as well. Like I say, I always have to stick up for my namesake. Oh, oh and one other thing. In, in John 14, when Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to be with me, that where I am, there you may be also. And it's Thomas who speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And that's when, in verse 6 of John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And again, it was Thomas that asked, that, you know, brought that point out. So, so that's tier 2. Now, tier 3, we'll have James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot. That's sort of the final of tier 3 for the, these disciples. James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Lesser. You'll see him. How'd you like to have that as your, as your nickname? <laughs> your name and then the Lesser. That would be kind of a, kind of a, wouldn't make my day anyway. Um, now, he's, he's called James the Lesser or James, the son of Alphaeus, just to differentiate him from James, the brother of John, and also from James, the brother of Jesus, who became a leader in the Jerusalem church and, uh, and wrote, the, wrote the epistle of James later on. But again, we don't know much about him. Simon called the zealot. We don't know a lot about him. One of two things with this zealot thing, either it was descriptive of his personality, that he was a real zealot, but there's also a group uh, called the zealots who were trying to, you know, with some violence even, get rid of the Romans who were ruling over them. We we're kind of thinking he probably wasn't a member of that group. Wouldn't fit too well with, with being a disciple of Jesus, at least. So maybe it's just a, this, this zealot is just a description of his, his personality. Judas, the son of James, and we think this is the same guy who in Matthew and Mark is called Thaddeus. You'll see him named there as Thaddeus. And we think that Matthew and Mark used his other name because the name Judas, by the time the Gospels were written, was so besmirched that they didn't want to have go by that name. They tried to <laughs> use, your, use his other name, right? And then, of course, notice he's listed last. Judas Iscariot, and notice how Luke adds there, the one who would become, who became a traitor. You wonder, does that mean that he was before that, <clears throat> before that time, or at least early on? Was he a faithful disciple? We do know one thing about Judas. What was, his, what was his role with the group of the disciples? What did he serve as with the group of the disciples? The money bag or the treasurer. Yeah, he was sort of the treasurer. He kept, he kept yeah, like treasurer, basically, kept the funds. And also, we know, not only did he keep the funds, but what did he sort of have a penchant for doing? Oh, sticky fingers. And we, we know that he actually helped himself out of the treasury. So if he was faithful, we're not sure how long, because he certainly got into his trouble there, right? Remember, that's when the, the, Jesus, the woman anoints Jesus with the expensive perfume, and he objects. And we read, that, we read that it's not because he was so concerned about the money being used for a better cause. It's because he was, was concerned that that money uh, should be sold and, and put more money in where he could help himself as well, okay? So that's the 12. Those are the 12 who are pulled out of a lot larger group of 
followers or students or disciples. And these are the 12 now uh, whom Jesus is going to be teaching, is going to be sending out with instructions, giving them authority to heal, to proclaim the gospel. And again, this is not a group that would be distinguished in any other way other than they are called by Jesus. It's nothing that they're bringing to the table. It's nothing that, you know, they are, they are the cream of the crop. Not, not at all. And again, that is good for us to think about as well as we think about God working through all of us in, in accomplishing his will. All right, let me stop here. And any questions, Pam? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. The question was if James was written by, and this is pretty well accepted that by, by scholars, that it was James, the brother of Jesus, who became a leader in the church post-resurrection, of course. Remember, before Christ was killed, his family thought he was crazy. But post-resurrection, things changed big, big time. And who, now the question was, who did the Catholic Church believe? I, I do not know. I w- we would have to ask the Roman Catholic Church but probably another James, it's surely, they surely couldn't speculate that it would be the son of Zebedee because he was killed so soon. Probably another, another James, I suppose, would be who they would come up with. I really don't know. It's a good question. Any other questions or comments on these, on these guys, the 12? All right, let's go on then. And notice now in verse 17, let's just read through 19 and then go back. And he, Jesus came down with them, that'd be the twelve, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. So now there's many more than just the twelve. And notice they're all described as his disciples. And a great multitude of people came from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for for power came out from him and healed them all. Now, this level place. He comes down with the twelve now that he has chosen. They come to a level place. We don't know if this is a level place maybe on that hill, just a little place there that was leveled out or whether he came all the way down the hill to you know, level ground at the bottom of the hill. But at any rate, notice there's a huge group of people. You've got really kind of three different uh, groups of people here. You've got the 12, who he's now saying are apostles, calling them apostles. Then you've got a huge number, uh, we don't know how many, of other disciples they are called, or followers or students, And then you've got what's described as a huge crowd of people coming. And notice from all over, you've got from within the promised land, Judea and Jerusalem. And you've even got them coming from the seacoast, which is Tyre and Sidon. And Tyre and Sidon, some feel, also could could include some Gentiles who are coming. And we're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 7, we're going to see an interaction with Jesus and a centurion, a a Gentile. And they're coming, and notice in verse 18, they're coming with basically two purposes, right? Two, Two main purposes. Number one, to hear him and to be healed. Those seem to be the two big things 
And remember, Jesus said when he left the one town, he, he needs to go and proclaim the good news. And that's what he continues to do. And he heals people of their diseases. And I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. This healing, we should... Uh, it, a couple things. Obviously, the healing is a great service and a great blessing to whoever is healed, obviously, right? Changes, literally life-changing for them. But when we see Jesus healing all of these people, it is sort of a glimpse. It's sort of a sneak preview, if you will, of what's going to happen on the day when all of creation is healed and made well once again. He's already begun here loosing creation from the bondage of sin and the bondage that sin put creation in by healing these people and taking away all the impact of sin in terms of their diseases, in terms of the demons that he is casting out. And so the kingdom of God is near. And God is literally intervening right here and now in human history. And things have started to roll back. And Jesus is the one doing it all. And notice there, they, we, you know, we get this occasionally in the scriptures, that they just sought to touch him. And remember the woman who had the issue of blood for, was it 12 years? I think 12 years who just touched the hem of his garment, remember, and was healed. We get this occasionally in, in the scriptures, that there's a power that goes out from him, and obviously they are touching him with faith that he will make them whole, make them well, right? And that's all we can say. We can't explain it in, in any other way. But they are being healed by him. And you can just see now again, as I said before, he is not cowering back. Even in the, in the face of this opposition from the Pharisees and others, he, he stays focused on his mission to preach and teach, to heal and make known that the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? Uh, that touching, I forgot to mention, that they sought to touch him. In the Greek, it's a, it's a verb, the tense of the verb is meaning they, they kept on. It was a continuous action. You've got to think, boy, this must have been, imagine to be on the receiving end of that if you're Jesus. People are just mobbing him, it seems, and, and wanting to have him healed, uh, to be healed, rather. And you know, you've got to wonder, too, the miracles certainly would, I, we would think, would make them stand up and listen to his words, wouldn't they? If, if they're seeing this incredible stuff happen right before their very eyes, you would think, you know, they, they would want to hear what he's got to say. Okay? All right. Let me stop here before we go on. We're going to get to some Beatitudes here coming up. Any comments or questions then on this section with all the people coming and healing, teaching? Any questions here? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Good question. I mentioned they, they would touch him with the faith, and, was, and so the question was, was that faith in his ability to heal them, or full-blown faith in, for salvation, and so on? It doesn't appear that, unless they had heard him teach before, that they probably knew that, at least not yet. They're coming, it seems like a lot of them are coming, and you get, you get the impression it's almost a little chaotic, that there, you know, there's so many people around, and they're just trying to touch him 
And I think certainly they had the faith that he could heal them because they had seen that happen, you know, in, in, in cases around. And his notoriety was spreading far and wide. That's why they're coming now all the way from the coast. They're coming inland from Tyre and Sidon. And, you know, you think about that. If, if you were suffering from, from something uh, like the guy with the withered hand or whatever it might be, or if maybe one of your family members was, and you heard about this guy Jesus, well, let's go, let's go see. Let's go see what he can do. You know, and, and many, many people are being healed. But that, that's good. I don't think we can say, unless they heard him yet, <laughs> that it was probably full-blown salvation uh, faith you know, in all the, all the, all the details. Susan? Yes. Right. Right. Good point. And the point was that he is not healing just one or two here and there. Just all of them are being healed. Yeah. Crowds. Crowds of people. Yeah. David. Yes, it, like I said, Tyre and Sidon, I, I read in a couple of different commentaries that it definitely could, and you wonder, you know, you don't know, but is that Luke's reason for putting in Tyre and Sidon also, that this could include some Gentiles uh, who are even coming to him. And as I said, we'll see in Luke 7, uh, the centurion who is going to come to Jesus, and Jesus will end up marveling at his faith, which is kind of ironic, given the other people whose faith he did not marvel in. Okay. Anything else? He's doing. The, oh, I mean, Jesus is doing the same thing today. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. The comment was about the the healing we see happening today, and uh, we could just go right down ballast here to uh, a couple different hospitals and see a whole lot of healing happening, can't we? God, God works through incredible means to bring about wholeness and healing today as well. That's. That's for sure. And that's why we pray every Sunday for those who are, who are in any physical challenge that uh, according to God's will, he would do exactly that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, good, good point. The, the point was the distinction that is made, not only here but in many other places, between diseases or illnesses and unclean spirits. Yeah. And, you know, I, that reminds me that, you know, you see these polls today, and seemingly increasingly, as time goes on, many people are starting to say they don't believe in a literal devil, a literal Satan, or, you know, a literal hell. And when we look at the scriptures, the Bible absolutely acknowledges the existence of Satan, of demons, of a literal place called Hades. You know, Jesus talks about where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So yes, there's a, there is a distinction here. And notice Jesus has authority over it, them all, over it all. And even over creation when he stops a storm, right, on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, he, he has ultimate authority over the entire creation. Okay, good point. Anything else? All right, let's go on. And we are going to get some Beatitudes here, and a Beatitude, notice, let's read through this first, and, and then come back. So we'll start at verse 20. And he, again, this would be Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples, his followers, and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil 
on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. All right, let's talk for just a moment. What is a beatitude? We've got beatitudes here. We've got them other places in Luke. We've got them in Matthew, Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And a beatitude is simply a declaration of blessedness. Blessed are you. You're in a state of you're in a state of blessedness, if I can use that, that terminology. Uh, blessed, blessed are you when this happens. So it's a state of wellness. It's a state of spiritual wholeness and goodness. And there's a theme we see here in these. There's a great reversal that takes place between what you've got here on this earth and what is going to be. So between the present and the not yet, there's a great reversal. And it's in this case of these Beatitudes, it's going from a lowly state to a much higher state, right? The great reversal that is going to be, that belongs there. Notice this blessedness is not the result of anything that we do. It's nothing that we accomplish. It's nothing that, uh, you know, we say we've got to try to achieve this. It's God's spiritual blessings in Christ that bring it about. Okay? And we've got, to keep, we've got to keep that in mind. Now, let's go back and take a look here. Uh, blessed are you who are poor. If we were to look at Matthew 5.3, Matthew has who are poor in spirit. Okay? So the question arises, when you look at Luke here, we're not in Matthew, we're in Luke, how should we interpret that? Should we interpret it strictly on a material basis, in other words, poor in terms of dollars and cents and bank account, or should we say, should we sort of spiritualize this and say it's poor in spirit? And the commentator that I read, who's a noted one in our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, said yes, both. And so poor, run down, and even in spirit poor, blessed are you, why? For yours, notice there, present tense, yours is the kingdom of God. And this is assuming, I should say in all these Beatitudes, we are assuming faith in Jesus Christ, or that they are members in the kingdom of God. So regardless of their condition, in some respects here on this earth, they are blessed because they are members of the kingdom of God, and this is what is going to be theirs as a result. So, blessed are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. So let's take it, if it's, if it's just spiritual, blessed are the humble, the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Even, let's take it materially, those who are poor, those who are destitute, still they are blessed. Not because they don't have a lot in terms of material things, but because they have the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God. And that's something that nobody can take from you. Okay? Notice, uh, well, let's go on. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Now Matthew 5, 6 has who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So again, Matthew sort of spiritualized this. And again, it could be either way. 
But notice there, hunger now for you shall be satisfied. You shall be filled. And again, the, the filling that will come spiritually speaking when one is in the kingdom of God. Okay. Uh, blessed are you who weep now. You know, our own causes of weeping could be our, number one, could be our own sinfulness, I suppose, but also could be just living in this sin-filled world, right? We've had, look at what we've had to weep about just in this last week here in our world. And you shall do what? You shall laugh, shall be filled with joy. Again, as a member of the kingdom of God. Now, verse 4, the fourth one rather, verse 22 Notice there that he is letting them know that they, as disciples, are going to be. They're going to face persecution. They're going to face trouble. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So he's kind of letting them know what's, what's coming down the pipe here. And notice there, the great reversal again, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So the reason for the rejoicing is your reward is great in heaven. Okay? All right, let me stop there. Comments, questions on the Beatitudes, on those Beatitudes. No, we're gonna, those were Beatitudes. Now we're going to get woes. We'll talk about woes in a second here. Okay. Uh, oh, yes, Paul. Yes. Material? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So the comment was, remember Luke's vocation or occupation as a physician and was very much concerned with the physical nature and so would lean more, perhaps would lean more toward a physical interpretation of these. Right. And again, I guess we uh, don't know for sure. One more thing, I think that is an argument in your favor is coming up in the woes. So we'll get to that in just a second. Any other comments, though, on the, on the Beatitudes? All right, now, let's look at the woes. So Jesus has talked about those who are blessed in a state of blessedness. Now, just the opposite. He's going to, when, whenever you're on the receiving end of a woe from Jesus, that is not a good thing. <laughs> okay, that is not a good thing. So, now notice they correspond. Let me show you this. Let's go to verse uh, 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. By the way, these woes, all just as I said, the Beatitudes all have as sort of assumed that you're a member of the kingdom of God. The woes all have an assumed that you're not. Okay? So look at here. Verse 24, woe to you who are rich. Turn back to verse 20. Blessed are you who are Four. So notice they line up with each other correspondingly, three and three, and then at the end, there's a fourth beatitude that summarizes, and at the end here, there's going to be a fourth woe that summarizes as well. So they're parallel construction with one another. Uh, so basically, sort of saying, you, you've received your reward, right? There's nothing more going to come. Whereas the poor who is in the kingdom of God is going to be rich, so to speak. Verse 25. Woe to you who are full now. Turn back to verse 21. Blessed are you who are 
hungry. Now, see the, see the pattern back and forth here? And again, being hungry in the kingdom of God is much better than being uh, full outside of the kingdom of God. Right? It, it, when you stop and think about it, it makes us think about priorities in life, doesn't it? What is of ultimate importance? You know? Not things here where, you know, moth, where the moth eat away and rust destroy and so on. Or, you know, Paul, set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on earth, right? So these, these beatitudes and these woes kind of reinforce that. What's really important? What should our priorities be on a day-to-day -day basis? Verse next, still verse 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now turn back to verse 21 again. Blessed are you who weep now. See again, that contrast there. Those who laugh now versus those who weep now. Okay? Steve? Yeah. Yeah, right, good point. Good point. The point was that life involves all of these, I guess, to some extent, right? Weeping and, right? But notice now the, the weeping, notice the great reversal on the woes again. It's toward a negative one. They shall, those who are, are laughing now, shall mourn and weep. And remember, Jesus, you know, talking about, again, the lake of burning fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, it's, it's the great reversal only in a negative sense here for those who are outside the kingdom. Verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, again, he's talking to the disciples. He's, gonna be, he's just been talking to the disciples. What would be wrong... What do you think would be wrong if everybody was speaking, including the Pharisees and the rulers and teachers of the law, what would be wrong if they were all speaking well of the disciples? What would be wrong with that? Be out of God's will. They, it, that would be a sure sign, wouldn't it? That they were not proclaiming what they had been taught by Jesus, right? Because just the opposite, he's already warned them, just the opposite is going to happen. And uh, let's just take this a little, one more step a little further. Should we be thinking that everybody today is going to be speaking well of us, and every pastor should think that everybody's going to be speaking well of him, and so on? <laughs> Must be doing something wrong. Yeah. You, you, would, you would need to sit up and maybe take a little examination of what's going on, right? And um, there's where there's always a temptation, isn't there, for a congregation to want to be seen you know, as popular and just applauded by, by the world. And I'm not saying that we should seek to be the opposite, but if you are befriending the world and the ways of the world so much that you can hardly be differentiated from the world, again, probably time to take a little inventory in terms of what you're teaching, what you're preaching. Sometimes what we preach, obviously and frankly, flies directly in the face of some of society's and culture's views right now, especially in this country. And we don't change what we teach, we don't change what we preach, simply so that we can be well-liked by everybody. It's just not going to happen. And, you know, again, woe to us, <laughs> she put in another woe here, woe to us if we conform our teaching and our preaching from the Word of God in order to please men. 
And again, that's just not what we are going to do. Unfortunately, there are some churches that, to one extent or another, have done that or are doing that. And uh, that is a real shame when we see that happen. That's the other way around. That's the, that's the tail wagging the dog in that case when that happens. Okay? All right, let me stop there. Any comments? We're done with the woes now. But, you know, I'm sorry, one more thing. It's like Pastor waited in announcements. One more. That the false prophets, he makes a reference to the false prophets there. And, you know, the, the, the real godly prophets in the Old Testament many times met with violence and even death, while the paid prophets were running around telling the kings and the rulers that, oh, everything's fine. Don't worry about a thing. You know, God is, God is completely happy with you, and things are just fine. And so the false prophets from old are another, in the Old Testament, are another good example. Prophets who were well-liked, but unfortunately were teaching and preaching falsely at that time. Okay? All right. A couple more minutes. Any, uh, any, any other questions before we go on? Or statements? All right, let's go on. We'll get a little bit more done, I think. Verse 27 and following, there are 16 commands in the verses coming up from 27 to 38. 16 different commands from Jesus. And in this section, he is telling us now how to live a God-pleasing life. How to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ in this world. Um, so let's take a look. First of all, let's go 27 through 31. That might be all we're going to get to. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Pretty challenging, isn't it? Pretty challenging. This is counterintuitive. This is not the way we normally react, is it, as, as human beings? What's the first thing that jumps right out at you? Love your enemies. And the word for love there is the agape. It's the uh, same word used for God's uh, love for us as, as uh, unmerited recipients of that love. Love your enemies. Okay? And notice there, also, do good to those who hate you. I, I was reading that. In the 4th and 5th centuries, we AD, 4th, 5th century AD, we have orders of worship that they use for worship services where they actually would include in their worship service prayers for heretics, false teachers, for those who cause division in the church, for pagans. They, they regularly practice this in the 4th and 5th century. And I was trying to think of the last time, I was trying to think of a time, that we have prayed for enemies from the altar. Now, we prayed for those who are outside the church. We do that a lot. We do that quite often. And we pray for many others. But, for example, would we pray for those in Afghanistan who brought about terrible atrocities 
this last week. Would we pray for them? They are our enemies, are they not? Certainly would, are behaving like them. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah, good, good point. If I pray for them, I'm not, we're not saying we pray for their demise, or, or their, their, but that they, that what, God would work, true God would work in them, so on. This, this gets very hard when it becomes a personal thing in our lives as well. You know, when someone is out, seemingly out to get us, and it's awfully hard to turn around and pray for that person, right, and do good to them. And who is the perfect, quintessential example of this? Exactly. What's the first thing he says from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He is beaten, he is mocked, he is spit upon, and turns the other cheek, doesn't he, literally. So when he is, and we'll see this coming up again, but you'll see it next week, when he is describing these things, he also has, and will continue from this point forward, to be a model of those things for his disciples to see and to watch. And so throughout this entire section, these 16 commands, you, know, you could summarize them all, maybe with the, the phrase, be an imitator of Jesus. Live like Jesus, right? That's the way they all kind of come to fruition. The, you know, the one who takes your cloak, the cloak was the outer gar- garment, the tunic was the inner garment, and, and Jesus says, just give them both away. Don't worry about it. Give them both away. Share. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Let's see. Give to those who beg of you. Don't demand things back. And notice verse 31. What does verse 31 sound just like? Golden rule, yeah. It's, it's phrased a little bit differently. Yeah, yeah. So, translation ESV has, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Okay, so it's stated maybe in a little more positive way than the golden rule. But, again, God putting, our, putting us in a place of someone else. Okay? All right, we're going to stop right there. Time-wise, we are, we are at a, our end. And the next week we'll pick up uh, from there. You will. I will not be here, but Pastor Wade will be here, I think, next week. And you'll pick up uh, at uh, verse 32 and go from there. All right, so let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Amen.